Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome to our follow-up episode discussing current issues in the fashion and beauty industry. This is Keith Arzeda. As you remember, the last time we talked about fashion and beauty, we talked to Mike Musso of KPMG. Spent a lot of time talking to him about the direct-to-consumer phenomenon and other issues of distress in this industry. This got us thinking that we should do a follow-up episode, and we're grateful to have firm resource Danielle Garno on the show. She is involved in the beauty and fashion industry in her daily practice of law. Danielle, please introduce yourself. Thanks, Keith, for having me on. This is um, exciting and one of those things I don't get to do every day, so I appreciate having me on. So my practice specializes, like you said, in fashion and beauty brands. I work with startups to multinationals, helping them sort of spot those legal issues that creatives often are are missing, right? So creatives really just want to design, get out the product and start their business. You know, for us, we can see those legal risks and sort of, so that's how I, I work with my clients as I, I go in and I sort of issue spot for them. Here are the legal things. No, you can't just use everything that you find on the internet and put it on your website because that's copyright infringement. Or, you know, look, if you're using influencers, there are these FTC guidelines that you have to be aware of and make sure that, you know, you're following the law. So that's, in a nutshell, that's what I do. So would you say that in general, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So let's talk what we like to do on distress situations is hear a little bit about you as a person and what you like to do for fun. Well, I am a person. <laughs> I have four daughters ranging in age from 13, nine, and I have twins that are seven about to turn eight. They are very much into the beauty industry and have basically learned to put on makeup from YouTube videos. So this is, you know, this is something that's in their wheelhouse as well. I, for fun, I decided that 46 was a great age to go back and start playing competitive tennis. So that's, you know, I've been uh, trying to up my tennis game these days. So you're swimming in the estrogen ocean and you're exercising. (laughs) Yeah, I sure am. Even my dog is a, is a female. (laughs) Everyone's like your poor husband. I'm like, I know. (laughs) Well, listen, let's let's talk about some important issues in the beauty and fashion industry. And let's start with intellectual property. While we generally talk about items of distress on this podcast, I think giving some of the disruptors in the direct-to-consumer space that Mike Musso of KPMG talked about, I think there's room to probably discuss intellectual property in the context of an ounce of prevention being worth more than a pound of cure, and what issues we should be looking at if you're in the beauty and health industry? Sure. So intellectual property, in the beauty industry, there is a lot more protection that you can have, whether it's in the patented formula that you're making for your product, whether it is, you know, your your trade name, the design of the packaging. 
I will tell you as a consumer, I am a sucker for packaging. Um, you could put the same color, you know, in a different bottle and I'm like, I'm all over it. Right. So you get IP, certain IP protection in the, the shape and packaging of whatever product that you're, that you're putting out. What you should be aware of is that when you're coming up with well, packaging, for example, but when you're coming up with names for your product, everybody loves to have like a cute and clever name. You know, Gen Z is all about marketing and, and relatability and does it feel organic and that sort of thing. So, you know, a lot of effort, money and time is really put into determining, you know, what are what are these products going to be named? Is it on brand? Does it align with my values, et cetera? you should clear those names before you go to market. We have seen a lot of litigation in that space over, over certain names. I represented a client and, you know, we got us you know, a very nice cease and desist letter from, from Beyonce's lawyers, you know, which was like, Hey, we like it. We appreciate the homage, but um, can you please not use it anymore? Very, very lucky in the, in that case, but we've certainly seen uh, litigation over, over naming of cosmetics and products. So you're saying I shouldn't name my new lipstick Tom Ford and spell it with an E and consider <laughs> that okay? I would highly advise you not to do that. But hey, if you can sell it for $65 a tube, you know, <laughs> it might be worth the business risk. I don't know. <laughs> so you're advising a board of directors and they are an upstart. Maybe they don't even have a board. You're inviting, advising an entrepreneur what things are you asking? What questions are you asking that entrepreneur about their new product to do an analysis of whether or not there's going to be distress or problems at the outset? At the outset, one, have you registered, have you cleared and registered your, your brand name, right? I mean, that is really the first thing. Like you said, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. There's nothing worse than spending so much money creating a brand, creating a product, cre creating getting the website, doing, you know, your, you know, your social media and your Instagram and launching and then getting a cease and desist letter saying that, Hey, Oh, by the way, you don't have the rights to that name. We've been using that since 2014, come up with something different. That is really the worst case scenario, especially in when you're dealing with a, a startup. I, I know that nobody likes to spend money on legal, but that is really where you should spend your money up front. So to, to avoid that major, major pitfall. So how far down the road should we go in terms of considering things like color scheme, look and feel? Let me give you an example. I have a soda. It's a red can. It's got a white swoosh in it. And instead of saying Coca-Cola, it says something like live wire, but it's in the same font, same color scheme same look and feel as Coca-Cola. How far do we need to go down that road? Well, I mean, there's been plenty of, of cases where, I mean, I can name them. There's so many where, you know, the big dogs like Coca-Cola, those massive brands don't like to see smaller brands coming anywhere close to infringing on their trademark. They have a very strong enforcement policy you know, rightfully so. Now, nobody wants to be a trademark bully, but look, if they let certain things slide, I'm not saying everyone is a, you have to make a business decision, but if you let those things slide, you can sort of lose those rights later on. 
So you have to be really careful. You have to make a business decision. If I was a startup, I wouldn't go anywhere near any of those big dogs. All right, let's take this out of the IP for a, for a second. Are there corporate issues, and I'm talking now general corporate issues, that are unique to the beauty and fashion industry? Corporate issues, I mean, look, we've seen out of the pandemic, we have seen a huge push in M&A space, in the venture capital space, in the private equities. You know, there there's a lot of money being thrown at beauty right now. Um, I don't know if it's because we've all been sitting on Zoom forever and, you know, I've noticed that I need Botox more than I would care to admit, but there's been a huge push because I think everybody's been sort of watching themselves on, on camera for so long. There's also sort of push towards conglomerate, like where a lo- these big multi-brand holding companies, luxury, you know, for example, are, are sort of snapping up to consolidate, to have this lineup of these amazing brands under their umbrella. So we've seen a lot of that as well. It's just been a really, really, really interesting, interesting time. I've seen some really young startups get bought by some of the big conglomerates. You know, that is a, that's a dream for the startup, really. So one thing that Mike talked to us a little bit about was agreements for packaging and production and the importance of making sure that quality control existed in the development of and manufacturing and packaging of a product, especially where you're going direct to consumer, you're doing it in a very fast fashion, and you're in a regulated industry. Is that the type of agreement that you spend time reviewing and discussing with your clients? Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, look, supply chain issues have been, you know, very, very difficult, especially come, you know, in the pandemic. You want to make sure that your manufacturer has the requisite licensing certifications, that they're a reputable player in the industry, that you have the appropriate indemnification clauses, that you have the right non-compete, because the last thing you want them to do is go out and sell your product to a, to a competitor. Um, we see that a lot, unfortunately. It's very difficult, look, especially for a startup that's not well-funded, right? Because you can put all those protections in paper as much as you can, but the paper is only as good as your ability to enforce it. So, you know, that is also something that when you're, especially when you're dealing outside of the U.S. jurisdiction, those are also other issues that you have to worry about when you're, when you're, when you're manufacturing overseas, who's sort of minding the store. And, you know, if something goes wrong, how are you going to fix it? We deal with that all the time. And it's definitely a conversation that I have with my clients as to, this is great, but you know, if something goes wrong, how are we going to address it? So one thing that I've been giving some thought to as I've listened to Mike talk about the direct consumer and negotiating these agreements and listening to you talk about protecting your IP and, and thinking about all of these pitfalls. One of the things I'd like to hear you say, talk about is you're representing an entrepreneur and everything goes right and you hit home runs all along the way. What is the trajectory and life cycle of that successful startup look like in terms of formation, taking the product to market, getting funding, and ultimately maybe going IPO or selling the business? So we really all want our clients to be like 
the company Drunk Elephant. This company, one, I love, I use their products and I'm a consumer. Um, two is, you know, she's a mom of four who was sort of putting these natural products together, working with a chemist and came up with this amazing approachable line that was affordable and fairly recently sold it for close to $900 million. And that, and it was a, a, I don't know the exact timing of it, but it was a very, it was a very fast meteoric rise uh, to success. So that's, that's the unicorn that everybody is really striving to, to be. So that's the home run. That's the home run. And I assume that with our clients, there's all kinds of shades of gray, but everybody's looking for success in an industry where there are a lot of disruptors and things move very fast. Is that right? I, that That is right. I'm seeing all these really cool brands, you know, come into the market, each with a different sort of hook, a different named product, a different sort of hero, hero product, which is, you know, the one that they're really famous for and most known for. So it's a, it's a great time. It's a great time to be in the space and it's an exciting time. A lot of money in this space right now. And so we also like to spend a little time on distressed situations, talking about some of your favorite cases, whether they're in, in the past or currently, and give you an opportunity to talk about that. One of the interesting cases that we're seeing that just, I think it's just because it's so novel and it involves a celebrity. There's a case currently pending against a beauty company and the influencer that they used. They used Molly Sims as a blogger uh, to promote this product. And the plaintiff in this case claimed that, you know, named Molly as a, as a defendant and claimed that her using and blogging about this product was an infringement on their trademark. And Molly Sims filed a motion to dismiss in federal court in California, claiming that, look, you know, I'm just a blogger. I'm a third party in this. I, you know, what, what is my obligation to know if, if the, the company that hired me to blog about it, how do I know that it's infringing? You know, what's my responsibility there? And she also said, look, it wasn't for, you know, it was, it was on my blog. It wasn't commercial. It was, you know, all the standard, you know, motion to defense defenses that we that we bring, the court didn't buy it, at least for now. It's, so the case is going to go forward. So that's when that one's really interesting from the perspective of look, the whole beauty industry really created the influencer space. It was the easiest and least expensive way to get their products out there to reach a gazillion people. And so now that there's a potential that an influencer can be a defendant in a lawsuit uh, for trademark infringement when they were really just, you know, hired as an endorser sort of raises the bar for brands. One, because you know, if influencer or celebrity is represented by, you know, reputable counsel and they know what they're doing, they're going to try to now negotiate um, an indemnity agreement, at least going towards, towards the influencer. When normally when we represent a brand, we want the indemnification from the influencer because if they do something that's absolutely insane or they violate, you know, the FTC regulations or, or, you know, something like that, we want to be indemnified if we have a, we have a lawsuit. So now I think it's going to start to you know, swing the other way. And that's just going to start to increase the cost of using influencers. So in a advertising 
scenario where they can be using influencers can be fairly inexpensive, that might just start to rack up the cost, especially if you're having to negotiate with counsel. So that was interesting. We'll see what happens. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Danielle, for being on Distressed Situations. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing more from you in the future. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Appreciate it. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.